and welcome to this Grange Festival podcast. I'm Jack Pepper, I'm a composer and a presenter on Scala Radio. And across three separate episodes, we're going to be exploring each of the Grange Festival's 2019 productions. The Marriage of Figaro, Falstaff and Belshazzar. Today it's the turn of Handel's Belshazzar, and I'm delighted that back in May I was able to speak with director Daniel Slater and conductor Harry Christophers. Let's start the very beginning. Daniel, if we could sum up the plot in a nutshell, are there some key events that we should be expecting? It's a story of a man, Belshazzar, who's been at war with another man, Cyrus, who is a Persian prince, and has locked himself inside his walled city. He's besieged by Cyrus and his general, Gobrias, who in fact is a turncoat, used to be with Belshazzar until the death of his son. And Belshazzar within the city is celebrating the annual festival of Seasac, which involves great amount of drinking. And Cyrus takes this opportunity to break inside the palace through a clever trick of draining dry, a riverbed and entering through the dry riverbed into the city, surprising the drunken revellers, killing Belshazzar and freeing the Jews who've been kept captive there for the last, we don't know how long, but we assume many years. So are there certain key themes that you think are particularly relevant to today that we should be looking out for? Well, I think it's exactly the right question about these pieces, about all these oratorios, is that what do they say to us today? Because they are all Old Testament stories that could come across to an audience that is maybe, say, agnostic or even atheist or gently Christian, but might not feel that the story of God intervening and writing on a wall has particularly anything enormous to say to them. And we took this story and thought, well, what if the writing on the wall is something that happens in Belshazzar's mind? And if it happens in Belshazzar's mind, and therefore if it's an expression of a certain, what we might call a psychotic breakdown, what has led to that breakdown? What was it that Belshazzar wanted from his life that then caused this to occur? And where else in the piece could we touch on this theme of madness so that the piece, in the end, uh, for a modern-day audience, is talking about the issue of, and of course it's been very current in the last few weeks on the BBC, uh, the way in which mental illness can affect all of us. They say, in, uh, the BBC said that one in a hundred people will suffer from some kind of severe mental illness at some point in their lives, be, be it depression or something more severe. And if that's the case, and I certainly can speak from personal experience um, in terms of members of my sort of more distant family, we all at some point, have been touched by these kind of stories. It's also these Old Testament characters, isn't it? I mean, they all have an incredible relevance today. I mean, they, you know, we see, see so many tyrants in the Old Testament. Here we've got Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. I mean, you know, what is that and what does it mean? But, of course, it's relevant to so many things in politics, big nations today. You know, you are, your days are numbered, you're being balanced, you're being weighed up, you know, and you've been found wanting, and then your party or your country is divided. And so it, you know, there's so much relevance to this. How does Handel use music, Harry, to, to reflect that? I think the thing with oratorio is that, of course, he's... He's never left 
being the man of opera. He's never left the man of, of, of actually insight into character as drama. And the great thing with Handel, he does it sometimes with incredible simplicity. There are, there, there are standard things. There's an aria for Gobris, you know, the bass arias, which, are, you know, the manly bass arias, and they're all in unison, accompanied by unison strings, but he gets the point across. So does it feel like you're conducting an opera or an oratorio, or are there blurred lines? In my way, in my vision, they're not blurred lines because actually what I really love to do and I've always tried to do with any oratorio I do with Handel is I do try and have some opportunity somewhere to stage it. Just for my own, my own personal sake, actually, I, I want to have that insight that somebody like Danny gives to, 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 the, to the characters and to look at, you know, Handel. You know, when he wrote Belshazzar, in the libretto, there are, there are stage directions all over the place. So the concept is there, that this was, in his mind, a dramatic piece. The fact that it was an oratorio, um, you know, in a concert performance, but performed in a theatre, OK, so instantly we've got that element of theatricality by being in the place that, um, you know, that people are used to drama being delivered. And, you know, it's, it's very important that for me to see it, see the work from a dramatic point of view. There are, of course, the biggest problem is the chorus because there's so much of it. If you look at most of Handel's actual operas, two or three choruses, they're very short, they're very simple. Ten, ten minutes, maybe, yeah, of maybe. Here we got over 50 minutes, possibly 55 minutes of, of chorus, but some of them in, in kind of three movements, each movement a different thing, full of counterpoint. Why is that? Why does Belshazzar have so many choruses, do you think? Well, I think this was, because it is, you know, it is oratorio, so he's left that realm of, of opera. I mean, not, you know, I mean, remember that when Handel arrived in England, he was still writing big operas, you know, Ariadante, Julius Caesar, all these were being done. And, and uh, then he had this idea of oratorio, you know, let's, let's take these wonderful biblical stories um, and put them onto the concert platform. So therefore he was able to demand much, much more from his singers and in, in a performance like Belshazzar, those, those chorus singers would have come from the you know, Chapel Royal here in, in London. And uh, you know, they would have been top singers. So are there certain things, Daniel, that we could expect from your production in terms of the set, in terms of the costumes? We've already touched on some of the themes, but visually, are there certain things that maybe you can you can tease ahead to? I mean, one was when I was working with the, my fantastic designer, Robert Innes Hopkins, on it, we thought, OK, this is a, an absolute masterpiece. And there's obviously, there are reasons why oratories are not staged, maybe as often as they could be. And we are doing the British staged premiere of this professional premiere of this piece, which is kind of extraordinary. It makes it a real event, I think, for Grange Festival. But at the same time, you think, why? Because sometimes, it, you know what happens. You, someone discovers a piece that's not been done, it gets put on, and you go, right, I now know why it hasn't been put on for 200 years, because it's rubbish. But in this case, it's absolutely fantastic. But what's difficult about it is that, one, teasing out what it's really about, and secondly, dealing with... The, the locations switch in milliseconds from one place to another and the chorus have to go from being a chorus of 
uh, Persians to being a chorus of Jews to being a chorus of Babylonians, often in the space of less than a minute. So the chorus actually start. they basically are narrators. They're telling us this story, and in the course of telling us the story, they take on various roles in the piece. So they begin as narrators, they come back as Babylonians, they come back as narrators, they go to become Jews, they, and they often do costume changes live in front of us, as if announcing the theatricality of what they're doing, not disguising it in any way. So that's one thing. The other thing was that the, the story is predicated on the notion of in and out, whether you're inside the city walls or outside the city walls. So Robert has created a set that evokes a sense of the Tower of Babel, which felt right for the story of a man, Belshazzar, who aspires to living life as though he is a god. It sounds like quite a complex set. Is there a lot of juggling of space and people to be done then? Yes. I mean, we have different levels. We have, in terms of space, we actually try and use height as well as, not just with the tower, but we felt that to create this sense of the Babylonian world of excess, it would be useful to be able to bring in acrobats. We have three acrobats who literally, one of them flies up, goes up to the grid on a silk and comes back down again. Uh, Two other acrobalancers who are absolutely fantastic. So they give an extra physical upward dimension to the world, which I think is useful for... We've been trying to find ways to, to hint at that world of Hieronymus Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights. If you're looking at it, then on your left-hand side, there's a clearly an evocation of something that's supposed to be heaven. On the right-hand side, as you look at it, it's very clearly hell. But in the middle is this curiously tricky-to-interpret central panel, which has the colours of heaven, but the imagery of hell. And it's as though Bosch was saying that when humans want to create heaven on earth, it ends up looking rather like hell. And that felt interesting for me with Belshazzar, that what he wants to do in creating this world of perfect liberty is that he aspires to heaven on earth, that it has hellish connotations for us, and therefore being able to have acrobats that could create shapes that could in some ways evoke that Bosch world felt really useful. touch a little bit on your backgrounds now. Let's start with you, Harry. You're famous, of course, for setting up the 16 in 1979. I've never had the opportunity to ask you, is there a reason why it's the word and not the number? You probably get asked that all the time. But I thought... It was quite simple. It was, you know, in those days, back in 1979, we were doing 16th century music, a a lot of English 16th century, and there were 16 singers, so I called it the 16. 18 months after... We've thought of that name. I added two sopranos, so it was 18. And then in 1985, we added an orchestra. So, you know, it's, it's just an umbrella name and it causes audiences a little bit of, um, you know, smirking and smiling when they they look through and they think, hang on, why is there 32 of them? Or why are there eight today? Um, 
I think I'd never seen 16 of them. No. <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm, I'm numerically challenged, so... Uh, no! Because <laughs> I mean, choral music and vocal music has been a part of your life from a very young age. You were a chorister at Canterbury yes. Cathedral, weren't you? So were you surrounded by music, like the music of Handel, no, as a no. child. I, mean, I, I was very lucky to be in a chorister at Canterbury because that did introduce me to a, a, a world of music that I, I just didn't know about. I mean, I didn't know anything about music, really. And as choristers, we know, we used to sing, uh, sometimes we had a boys' service on a Thursday and we would sing uh, um, arias from Bach and Handel and that was fantastic, you know. Full 36 kids singing, singing I Know That My Redeemer or Bus and Roy from The, from the, the Passion. It was phenomenal. And uh, But, you know, I, just like any other, you know, secondary kid I mean I did obviously I did a lot of music at the school I did but I enjoyed sport and all sorts of other things and when I went to university I actually you know my loves in music were in classical music were Stravinsky, Mahler, Liszt and then a lot of rock music I mean it was Led Zeppelin, Stones, Jethro Tull, all that lot and it wasn't until really I think after university after Oxford that I when I started the 16 we also started working with Tom Koopman um, and Tom was a big influence on me and a, a great uh, a phenomenal Baroque specialist, fantastic keyboard player, of course. And, and But bit by bit, I just thought, hang on, I want to do these things in a slightly different way. And one of the things, you know, you know, Handel Oratorio specifically was in danger of, was, and it, due to sort of large performances and, you know, right through, you know, the beginning of the 20th century, the big orchestral performances of all these oratorios, and right through to the early days of the rock music movement starting, were in danger of becoming compartmentalized you know it, it was a restative it was an aria it was a chorus and it was sort of finish the aria turn the page start the chorus turn the page and what really bugged me was there was no continuity there was no thought of starting the overture i know how i'm going to end this piece and for me that was something that was missing and of course by then being able to put oratorio onto stage you know realize actually yeah i'm right i'm right you know this you know the drama needs to move and you don't hang about there's a pacing that's got to be there. And if you don't preserve that energy in what is ostensibly a concert platform work, audience are disservice. Because, Daniel, I mean, you've spent the last 20 years working as a freelance opera director. You've directed 60 productions in 17 countries. Does the lifestyle of an opera director present certain challenges, maybe? Because presumably you're, you're sealed away in a theatre or in a, a rehearsal room for many weeks at a time. You're having to travel a lot. I think when I was starting out, I loved all that side of it. I loved the the using of languages while abroad, discovering a new city. And and as I've got imperceptibly older, I've, <laughs> I've noticed that I'm not so drawn to that side of it. I just want to do the work, and the work happens to be where it happens to be. There's a part of me that misses being here, and my creativity often happens here at home. And then if you're very lucky, like happening now, I'm rehearsing a five-minute bike ride from my house. <laughs> um, I suppose I do find that element of the, the travel challenging. I, I have a daughter and I had periods of my life where I didn't see her for maybe two months at a time. And I found that very difficult. As a director, how, what, what are the hours that you work? If you're rehearsing, how long does a typical day well, last think, for? Uh, is there I mean, a typical it, day? There is no... I mean, every house is different. I, I think a UK version is uh, It's very... The hours are fine. It's sort of 10.30 to 5.30, Monday to Friday, and then a Saturday morning, and that's rehearsals for the first four weeks. Once you get on stage, then the hours can be much longer because although the singers might come in for two, three-hour sessions a day, 
the director and the designer will tend to be there before them and for some time after them doing all the technical stuff and the lighting stuff. Uh, so that becomes, then you start having kind of 12 hour or longer days for that kind of period of maybe two weeks. But sometimes you work abroad. Germany, the system is you work morning and you work in the evening. It kills me. Like you build up this energy, this head of steam till one o'clock. You're told, right, go away, have lunch, come back at six o'clock or seven o'clock. So you, you go home and twiddle your thumbs waiting to get back in the rehearsal room, which is purely so that the singers can pick up their kids from school, feed them and then come back to rehearsal. Is there a particular message that you want to give out through your production, through your performance? Is there something very core to your performance that you want the audience to take away? I want them to come away feeling invigorated by this. We are, we are making sure that the audience have to believe in the story that we're, we're telling them. And Daniel, the, the key message that you want to give out? I think that uh, the piece has a lot to say about the nature of belief and absolutism and the, the desire to create utopia on earth and if any if history has taught us anything in the last 15 20 years particularly it's that that desire to create utopia on earth very often leads people to kill each other and that there is a clash between utopias in this world in fact there's a multiple clash between the utopias represented by daniel the jews between the utopia represented by Belshazzar and the Babylonians uh, and Cyrus and the Persians. And when those come together, in the end, there is going to be some sort of destruction. And yet at the same time, what I think is thrilling for the piece for an audience is that they watch these characters who put such great demands on life, who are, if you like, pioneers, who take things just that bit further than we might ever dare to. And if you might, watching it, think to yourself, would I, would I take it that bit further? Do I dare to do that? Or is there a part of me that would I risk my destruction? So is, it, is this an optimistic or a pessimistic piece? Are we, are we going to be coming away filled with hope? Or is it actually quite a psychological, realistic portrayal of humanity and therefore maybe not something that we're going to feel comfortable with all the time? I suppose that I, I, suppose I veer more towards the second, only because I find the first in, in risk of becoming sentimental. And I, I suppose it's true that the original by presenting Cyrus as being a holy good, that the holy good man that is portrayed in the Old Testament and that's recounted by Daniel to his 
Jewish captives is the stuff of dreams and fantasy. You've been listening to this Grange Festival podcast exploring Handel's Bell Shazza with me, Jack Pepper. And joining them during their rehearsals in May, we heard from the director, Daniel Slater, and conductor, Harry Christophers. Tonight's performance includes the 16 Choir and Orchestra, the Grange Festival Chorus, and among the cast, Robert Murray as Belshazzar and Christopher Ainsley as Cyrus. Belshazzar appears at the Grange Festival on June 20th, 22nd and 28th, and in July on the 4th and the 6th, closing the 2019 festival. To find out more information, just head to thegrangefestival.co.uk and follow us on Twitter at Grange Festival. Thanks very much for joining us, and we really hope you enjoy the performance. (laughs) 